Welcome to the One and O podcast hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. We're part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel, and today we will talk a lot of Texas basketball. Two big wins for Texas after succumbing to the Red Raiders in Lubbock, including a thriller versus Kansas. We'll also get into some uh, talking about their upcoming matchup with the Baylor Bears in Waco before getting into some 2023 recruiting storylines. Make sure you listen to our show and the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast with Kevin Dunn and Paul Wadlington. Subscribe, rate, and review, and please be a good patron to our sponsors. Yeah, audiovisual consultations. Give them a call, 512-255-8678. If you're looking for the home TV setup of your dreams, AV Consultations can hook you up. Make sure you get it done by the NCAA tournament. AVConsultations.com is their website. And the One and O podcast is also brought to you by Altstadt Brewery, Altstadt Beer. It is German beer made here. The best beer that you can find all throughout the state of Texas, available in Central Texas, the Houston area, the DFW Metroplex, wherever you buy your beer. Make sure the next time you're at the store, you pick up a six-pack of Altstadt beer. No impurities, no regrets. So last time we talked, we talked about Texas's loss at Texas Tech. And I think kind of looking back at that, uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a good matchup for, for Texas, honestly. And uh, we, we saw that they were a little bit shaken by the, the environment that they were in. Uh, and I think the key to this team is if Timmy Allen can kind of successfully bring the ball up the floor. And that wasn't really a thing that Texas Tech allowed him to do. And then I think we talked about Iowa State being a, a pretty poor matchup for the Longhorns, but something that we noticed uh, both in the Iowa State game, and we'll get to it eventually with the Kansas game, is that Texas basically just shut down two of the best scorers in the Big 12, and they especially did it against Isaiah Brockington and Iowa State. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Iowa State's been struggling in Big 12 play. I think they're last in the Big 12 right now. So I had some confidence for Texas going into that game, even though the Longhorns lost in Ames earlier this year, like the Iowa State team that started the season 13-0 and was ranked in the top 15, that team is long gone. So they've been struggling a little bit, but still a ranked win, still a quality win for Texas uh, over an Iowa State team who has beaten some good opponents this year. So for the Longhorns to have the second half that they had, it wasn't a 40-minute domination uh, domination against the Cyclones. I think it was a two-point game at recess, and then Texas mm-hmm. just dominated on both ends of the floor in the second half. That was a really, really good showing by the Longhorns and uh, another quality win for Texas. So you're right. Isaiah Brockington has been one of the best players in the Big 12 this year. Texas held him to 5-17 and 17 from the floor, only 12 points, only got to the line a couple of times too. He's been doing a lot of his work at the charity stripe this season. So Texas with stifling defense, I mean, that's a staple of Chris Beard, right? Texas held Iowa State to 28% shooting. They were two of 15 from three. Obviously, the 41 points, that's probably the number that sticks out the most. I mean, 41 points in a 40-minute game. Phenomenal defense by Texas. And then as the game progressed, Joe, the Longhorns did more and more offensively to distance themselves from the Cyclones. So one of the most impressive performances to date from Texas, especially what they did in the final 20 minutes last Saturday. Yeah, just looking at the the box score real quick, 18 points in the second half by Iowa State, that, that'll win you basketball games. And even yeah. though we've complained about Texas's offense, they have enough offense to, to win if they're only giving up 18 points and a half, more than enough offense to win if they're giving up 18 points and a half. And the, the other thing that you're, you're noticing, um, I think, from Chris Beard is that they're able to pick things up and make some changes after halftime. And I, I think uh, – 
the, the Iowa State game was good evidence of that, mostly because they, the Texas offense had a long dry spell, I'm pretty sure, in that first half. Uh, and I think they needed that like 5-0 run at the very – I think it was a 5-0 run, something like that, maybe 4-0 run at the end, to take that 25-23 lead at halftime. So they, you know, they have their their first half problems, and they've had their first half problems in, in quite a few games. In fact, they've had a couple second half problems. The one that sticks out, the reason they lost to Seton Hall games because they couldn't score in the second half. Uh, so they, they continue to have some of these droughts, and I think that's personnel-related. Uh, but when Iowa State, like I kind of mentioned with Texas Tech, Iowa State doesn't have a guy who can really defend Timmy Allen in his multiple roles. And he was able to bring the ball up the floor and get some things going for Texas. And Texas started to hit their shots. So uh, good for them to, to get that re- revenge win, get that win at home. I don't think it'll be a quadrant one win, but all these games are, are going to be tough and they're going to be uh, good, good building blocks on the resume anyway, just because of how well respected the big 12 is this year. And, you know, you talked about the Iowa state uh, they're standing in the big 12 right now. Still, they are the number 38 team in the net. So they're a top 50 team in net. Uh, they're, they're going to be, you know, the analytics uh, and, and this is the, the most important analytics, the ones that the NCAA tournament uses uh, the selection committee uses think highly of all these teams. Every yeah. one of them is top 70. So just any Big 12 win, and especially before the stretch that they had or entered coming up and with that Kansas game. Yeah, I'm looking at the Bracket Matrix right now. That's a website that compiles all of the bracketologies from around the interwebs, and they've got Iowa State as a seven. Like the average bracketology prediction for Iowa State right now is a seven seed. So like that's a team in the tournament. So it's a win for Texas over a tournament team. They didn't get a lot of those. In non-conference play, matter of fact, the only non-con tournament when they have was against Tennessee, and that obviously just happened like two weeks ago. So they didn't stockpile a lot of wins early in the season against tournament teams, and over the last couple of weeks, they've stockpiled three or four. So, yeah, Iowa State, despite their struggles in the conference, that's still a win for Texas over a tournament team, and it was a dominating win for the Longhorns. And, and, and look, we can use this as a transition to Kansas if we want to do that, but a theme that we've seen from Texas in the last two games – was not only forcing turnovers, Joe, but taking advantage of those turnovers. Uh, They forced 18 turnovers against Iowa State. They forced 15 against Kansas the other night. The Longhorns are outscoring their opponents 48-8 to off of turnovers in those last two games. So it's one thing to just create turnovers. That's great. Obviously, you're preventing the other team from scoring when you do that. But it's another thing to turn those takeaways into points on the other end. And Texas has really succeeded at that in each of the last two games. And that's why they've got two wins over ranked opponents to show for. Yeah, I'd say that's a big reason why they were able to, to beat Kansas. If we want to start moving to that game, because, you know, first they had played a Monday game, first big Monday of the game of the year. Uh, you got Jay Billis. And quickly on that, I went home and rewatched that game. You forget how Jay Billis – kind of has a condescending tone a little yeah. bit yeah uh but he he highlights x's and he uses the lingo he highlights the x's and x's and o's of basketball uh better than i remember i haven't watched a ton of big monday or billis games this year so i was i remember you know he still has that i'm smarter than you tone which <laughs> may be kind of true duke educated guy who knows i was a lot gonna about say basketball. he went to duke doesn't everybody yeah. who went to duke have that tone but at the same time, he, he opened – he identified a lot of different things. And he identified – one thing that he identified was that that game was a physical war. 
Like he, one of the biggest complaints that uh, Bill has seemed to have was that they, teams were just getting foul call, foul calls were being not made left and right. And while that's kind of a, a thing of Big 12 basketball, I'm glad that Texas was able to get into one of those games with a top five team in the country and still hold their own because a lot of criticism about Texas and, and mainly centered around some of their post players is that they're not the, the you know, most physically imposing. I don't want to call them soft, yeah. uh, but, you know, they're, they're when you're going up against David McCormick, David McCormick's got 30 pounds on, on Trey Mitchell and Christian Bishop, but they pretty much held their own against that crew. Uh, but to go back to your point about turnovers, that's why Texas won this game. Texas, they didn't shoot great from the field. Kansas shot amazing from the field. But Texas had 19 more, oppor- 19 more field goal attempts. And they had the same amount of makes as a result. Texas also did, good from the, did well from the line. But those turnovers, forcing turnovers, playing that physical basketball to create those added opportunities at the offensive end, that's why Texas won the game. And uh, you can credit a lot of that to keeping the ball out of Oshai Abachi's hands. Yeah, yeah. Turnovers and offensive rebounding, I think, were massive for the Longhorns. You know, I did a YouTube live stream uh, right after the game, and somebody commented, like, man, rebounding almost cost us tonight. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, Texas won that game because of rebounding. 15 offensive rebounds. It's why they took 19 more shots than Kansas did, like you said, Joe. So, yeah, doing the dirty work, man. Those are Chris Beard staples, too. I mean, you think of defense, but you also think of, uh, think of just tenacity for 40 minutes. You saw that from Texas the other night, and it was an impressive performance. And, yeah, to your point about slowing down Ochai Abaji, you know, Abaji's the leading scorer in the Big 12. He should be a first-team All-American when it's all said and done. He's probably going to be this conference's player of the year, too, when the year comes to an end. He's an absolute stud, and he didn't get into double digits until the last minute of the game, right? He had that tip in. We that, just over that's what a minute it was. to play. Yeah. yeah, and it felt like the dagger, right? That put Kansas up four with a minute to go, and you're like, oh, man, we fought so hard, and uh, that's how this is going to end, right? But then Texas obviously responded with that great run to close things out. They got some help from some Kansas missed free throws. Uh, Texas forced a couple of turnovers down the stretch, too, kind of a microcosm of the game. But you're right. I mean, defending the best players on Iowa State and Kansas, kind of taking them out of the game, forcing other players to beat you. That's a pretty good recipe for success, and, and Texas succeeded the last couple of nights. Yeah, just looking at the uh, Kansas starters, uh, you had David McCormick had uh, 16, Jalen Wilson had 18, and Christian Brown had had 13. So that that that's a Kansas team scoring 76 uh, with those three in double figures and Jalen Wilson having a big game. If Oshai Abaji hits his normal total, you know, Kansas is may- maybe putting up 90 uh, or something like that. So that that speaks to just how – I think it honestly speaks to just how good Kansas really is. Yeah. They have those multiple threats, uh, and it took Courtney Ramey playing a, the defensive game of his, of his life uh, uh, gave a winning effort on that end of the floor, face guarding Abaji and making sure he couldn't get away. Um, the fact that that they, that's what Chris Beard basically said: "Hey, your your four have to have to your best four, your other four have to beat R five, yeah, uh, or something like that." And it, it luckily it worked out thanks to the the turnovers because the guys who aren't Ochai Abaji aren't as secure with the basketball. 
Yeah, that's a huge win for Texas, man. I mean, Kansas should win at least a share of the Big 12 this year. Like, they don't have a lot of tough games left. They have a lead right now in the conference. I think a half-game lead over Baylor right now for first place in the league. But, like, Kansas should end up winning at least a share of this league when it's all said and done. So, to get a win over them is really, really impressive. And it's far and away the most impressive win of the year for Texas, both in terms of the eye test and in terms of the selection committee, too. And I think my favorite part of the win, Joe, was – Texas won in a way that they haven't won all year. Going into that game against Kansas on Tuesday – or on Monday, excuse me, the Longhorns were 0-3 when their opponents scored 70 or more. Like, that had been an issue. If the other team was able to get the 70, Texas just didn't have the offense to get the 72, and that was ball game. Well, Texas changed that on Monday. All right, KU scored 76. As you mentioned, the Longhorns were able to score 79. So, we talk about the defense – forcing takeaways, and that's impressive against Kansas, who is one of the best offensive teams in the country. I think Ken Palm has them as the third most efficient offense in all of college basketball. So to force those turnovers, to make Kansas struggle at times on that end of the floor is great. But for Texas to score 40 and then 39 in the two halves, like we haven't seen that offensive consistency over the span of a 40-minute game from Texas all season, especially against a good team, let alone a great team, like Kansas. So that was cool to me. That was the coolest part of the win. Like Texas winning in a way that they haven't won in all year. I would have been impressed with any W of course. Uh, But to me, 79, 76 feels more impressive than like 65, 62, because it showed me Joe that, okay, if Texas does get into a little bit of a shootout, not a crazy shootout. I don't want Texas playing games in the eighties or nineties or anything like that, but if they do, I don't think anybody in Texas does. No, 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 no. But if they do need to score in the seventies to win a basketball game, they can do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, only, the only problem really with that game was distant shooting. Yep. And uh, not a lot of that is really due to Kansas, I feel like. It was mostly because Texas wasn't hitting looks. And uh, you had Marcus Carr make that one as time expired at halftime. Uh, you had him hit one more, I believe. And then Trey Mitchell's bank, bank shot at the at the very end of the game. Like that, oh, those, those were basically the only – good or those were the only makes of, of what 19 attempts and there were a good amount of those 19 attempts that were solid looks Mitchell shot some that uh I don't want to say they were they they were they weren't awful shots now they didn't look good as a result but like set up and in the offense they were fine Courtney Ramey missed some open looks Andrew Jones missed some open looks like that's that's a big nitpick and something that even Chris Beard knows that they're going to have to improve because you know, they, they, they know that with as few possessions as they play with the way their paces or defense that hitting three point shots, when you have the rare opportunities, it's huge for this team. Uh, you know, they have to probably be above 35% in order for it to, to work for this team not, not below 20. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that they still pulled it out makes it even more impressive, but that type of shooting performance, they have to get it at least into the third. You know, something like that. Uh, you can't operate like they did, especially as you go deeper into the Big 12 season and eventually into the conference and NCAA tournament. You're being too nice, Joe. They were three of 20 from downtown, not oh, three of 19. Yeah, you're uh, you're giving them too much credit. 15% from beyond the arc. That was what the Longhorns were on Monday. And that last Trey Mitchell three that he banked in, which was the biggest shot of the game for Texas, that was one of those, no, no, no. Oh, great shot. Great shot. Like, so – He's open for a reason, Joe. Right. He, was 05. So, he talked about it. He was open on most of those looks. They just weren't even close. So when he pulled up for that three, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? I shot. 
so funny story about that. There's uh, if you're if you go to the Irwin Center, there's the what side it west entrance uh, right along. I think that's Red River. You go down. You have like that courtside club to your right. You go down those little sets of stairs and you go right. Then they have so you okay Lone Star rooms just at the entrance. Mm-hmm. You go down the stairs. There's courtside club, which is yeah. really big donors, and there's the media room, which is where they have uh, interviews post game. The next door past the media room is the Texas locker room. And a little bit down the way uh, is the visitor's locker room. And normally they have the visitors go first in, in the media uh, availability, that type of thing. And I think they had uh, McCormick and, and Wilson come through. Well, at a certain point, Trey Mitchell was ahead of them. I don't know where, where exactly he was going, uh, but Trey Mitchell said, like, you know, I, it's like I told you I called bank or something like that. And I heard – Jalen Wilson walking into the media room, going up to the podium, just kind of mutter under his breath, like, there's no way that guy called bank. There's no way that guy called bank. So even, even to that, to that point, it was a very much a no, 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 no. Yes. Got it. All right. Good. That, and and yeah. Kansas was, you know, that's probably the shot Bill Self was fine with Texas taking and uh, it, it just didn't work out that way. But one thing I, and I put this in my uh, post game write up that last shot by Texas I know there's been a lot of criticism of Marcus Carr's ability as a, as a facilitator, but without him getting downhill, that doesn't open up that shot. And he, because he was able to get downhill, Kansas went in a two, three zone, the top left, if you're you know, facing the offense, the top left defender had to carry Carr all the way to the rim. Mm-hmm. He stopped in the paint. Allen was right there and hit that elbow jumper. Uh, because of Carr's penetration, so yeah. there's been there's good, good and bad from that game, but that that last shot, a it shows that Marcus Carr, you know, can play up to some situations, and b that Timmy Allen is this per, is this team's offensive you know go-to guy agreed Timmy Allen's the most important player on this team and you've been saying that for weeks right for a while I thought it was Marcus Carr and obviously Marcus Carr is important but Marcus Carr bowled out against Texas Tech and Texas couldn't do anything with it like Timmy Allen was a no-show in Lubbock in the last two games he's been the facilitator and kind of the de facto point guard for this offense and Texas has looked a lot better offensively because of it so yeah Timmy Allen what he can do in the mid-range man there aren't a lot of guys in today's college basketball that can do that from there. And, I, and I, I'm glad that you brought that up, just the aggression from Carr on that play. We saw that aggressiveness from Texas all night. Like, yeah, they were three of 20 from three. And should a team that shoots the ball as poorly as Texas be jacking up 23s a night? Probably not. They shot 47 twos. It's not like they were relying on the three. And my favorite, right. my favorite stat, I mean, we've talked about a lot of stats, and I don't want to be stats guy here, but like the stat that backs up my point about Texas's aggression – they got to the free throw line 23 times and they made 20 of them. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, when Texas struggles offensively, they're settling, right? They're dribbling the ball for 25 seconds and they're jacking up a bad shot. Like they were penetrating. They were getting the ball down low. Trey Mitchell was eight of eight from the free throw line in the first half, which is why I'm so pissed that Mitchell keeps shooting threes. Cause like, if you give him the ball on the low block, he can make stuff happen or he can get fouled to get some easy points at the charity stripe, like that type of aggression. We need more of that from Texas, like force the officials to make a tough call penetrate driving kick opens up you get some easy baskets at the rim or at worst you're going to the free throw line so we didn't see that in Lubbock 
We didn't see that in that Seton Hall game that you talked about earlier. It was just way too much settling for Texas. Joe, this team and most teams in today's college basketball don't have the shooters to where they can just be content settling for a bunch of jumpers over the course of a 40-minute game. That's the type of offensive intensity and aggression that I want to see from Texas moving forward. And if they play that way, it feels like they can hang with most teams across the country. Exactly, especially with the way their defense operated in yeah. that game and, and so far. So uh, last thing on, on Kansas, what did you think of the, uh, the court storming? Oh, man, I'm such an old man when it comes to court storming. I, I'm a court, stor- uh, court storm snob, and I texted a couple of my buddies after the game, and they called me that, and they're right. I just – I don't think Texas should be court storming, man. If we – Went to Iona and covered Iona, and you beat Kansas, that's fine. Storm the court. But, like, I know Texas basketball is not Texas football. I know Texas basketball is not Texas baseball. I get it. It's third. It will always be third, whatever. But, like, Texas football ain't storming the field. When's the last time Texas football stormed the field? The Houston game back in 1990? Like, even exactly. even, even then, like, that was, that was before we were born, and I'm still like, really? We, we rushed the field as Texas football? Like, come on. I don't care how good Houston was. I don't care how bad Texas was before that. Like, come on, Texas baseball. They don't dogpile until they win the national championship, right? Like, I know Texas basketball isn't that, but, man, I, I, I don't like the idea of rushing the floor ever when you're Texas. And, Joe, Texas opened that game as a favorite. I know it closed as yeah. Kansas as a one-point favorite, but, like, it wasn't like a massive shocking upset that nobody expected. Texas opened up as a favorite in that game, so – I don't know, man. I'll get criticized. I'll get called an old man. People will tell me that I don't want the kids to have fun. None of that's none of that's true. But I just I don't think Texas should be storming the floor, man. I just especially when you're ranked and like you're trying to create this. Hey, this is who we plan to be. We don't want this to be a one off like we want this to be a consistent thing moving forward. I just I don't love the look. Yeah, I well, here's the other thing. I don't think it's going to be a consistent thing. Uh, the other, and Chris Beard, you know, normally after games and he did this at tech and he does it at Texas. And normally there aren't as many students that there were at this game, aren't as many people in, in general, normally say, Hey, come up, come on down to the floor. Students join, sing us, sing the eyes of Texas with us. That that's not what this was. That was a full fledged court storming. No. Um, and, and so I, I get where you're coming from. Uh, I think two things have altered it. One, and maybe this kind of serves to your point. Maybe it serves mine. It's just more common these days. It, it really is. And, uh, you know, in the SEC, Arkansas's athletic department, when they stormed the field versus Texas, $250,000 fine. When they stormed the field or stormed the court the other night when they beat Auburn, $250,000 fine. It's only twenty five grand in the Big 12. So maybe there's not as much of an incentive for schools to, to stop it uh, as there are in, in other places. Uh, the other thing is – you know, this was the last time Kansas will play in the Irwin Center. And it also is a way just for excitement to build in the program. Uh, There were students there, I'd say 35. uh, No, when I walked in, that was about an hour before tip-off. And, you know, those four lower bowl student sections were all full. I think they had to turn some students away which, you know, good and bad there. So right. they, they packed it in. They, they got there for that game. And, uh, you know, involvement as far as students go, it's, I'd say it's not smart. You know, they're, they're not making much noise on when the horns are on defense unless the whole arena is. And they're not making, you know, 
good. You're not, they don't really, they just stand and watch the game. It, it is what it is with, with Longhorn basketball student section. So, uh, but that was one of the best crowds I've seen at the Irwin center in several years and kind of glad they got to see a, a good reward and, you know, whatever, let, let them storm the floor. They're not going to do it for, for against Baylor and they're not going to do it against who's the other home game TCU. So yeah. Might as well. Or Texas Tech. Hell, if Tech wins, they're, Tech, they, might, yeah. they might storm the court. There might be yeah. more Tech fans in the building next Saturday. Look, I'm not losing any sleep over it. And I, right. I can yeah. already I can already read Nor the Nor are you losing $25,000. So. Right, exactly. So, and, and look, it, it was Texas's best chance at an impressive home win this season, right? Kansas, the best team in the Big 12, the best team that was coming into Austin. Like, if there's a game you're going to do it, I guess that would be the game to do it. And look, if I was a student there, I would have been at the game, obviously. I would have been in the student section. Obviously, I would have stormed the court. Like I would have been the mm-hmm. first guy out there. I wouldn't have been spearheading the storm, and I still would have been like, what are we doing? But like, I'm not going to be the guy who's like, nope, you guys go. I'm going to stay here. And my, my morals, I don't, I don't feel that strongly. About it. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel that strongly about it to where I'm just going to be like totally anti that, and I'm going to chastise anybody who did it. But I just – I would have preferred for them not to do it. Well – too late now so yeah, I know. I know. uh <laughs> what about this uh this baylor game coming up i'll be headed to the Farrell center uh getting up early saturday morning 11 a.m fran will be in the building uh and let's see as they baylor's been having injury issue i'm trying to look through their roster yeah. lj crier seems to be having injury issues and in there one more who's been kind of hit or miss lately Flagler's been hurt a lot um but he played against kansas over the weekend and he did play i think he played last night against k-state and baylor's win in manhattan so crier's the big guy who's still out he's their leading scorer they've got a lot of talented pieces like they're still more than good enough to beat texas without lj crier but they haven't been the same baylor since he got hurt and Baylor got off to that phenomenal undefeated start. I think they got all the way to number one in the country. And people are having questions like, oh, my God, is this year's Baylor's team as good as last year's Baylor team? Could they be better than the defending national champs? Like, how is this possible? Uh, we found out that it wasn't possible. Yeah. Like, that's not really a shot at this year's Baylor team. That Like, last year's team was just ridiculously good, and Baylor lost its three best players from a season ago. So understandable that there would be some sort of drop-off the fact that this is still a top 10 team competing for a big 12 title, despite all that they lost uh, is a testament to Scott drew and the program he's built in Waco. So Baylor though, over the last nine games, Joe, they're just five and four. And I think everybody mm-hmm. saw them get absolutely lambasted by Kansas over the weekend like that. It, it's a different Baylor team this year, and it's a more beatable Baylor team. Baylor's going to be favored. They should be favored. I think Baylor's going to win. Spoiler alert. Uh, I don't think they're as good of a matchup for uh, for Texas as Kansas was. But like if there's a quote unquote, maybe good time to be playing Baylor, it's right now while they're not 100 percent healthy and they're clearly not in the spot that they were at the start of the season. Yeah, we'll see what happens if uh, – let's see if I can get this right. I know – I've heard it before, so I think I got it. Jonathan Shamwa Shachua. There, there we go. go. He's, if, he can, if he's rebounding, it's going to be tough for Texas. I'm also pretty curious to see the, uh, the good old Brock Cunningham versus Matthew Mayer matchup. That's ah. going to be fun to watch because I bet those guys had some lighthearted battles when they were uh, working over at Westlake, but I bet this, this battle is not going to be lighthearted. Um, what about, I guess – We've seen over the past couple of weeks, uh, maybe just the past week, Brock Cunningham's been starting 
but he hasn't really been getting starters minutes. And that's a little bit due to Andrew Jones just wanting to be a six man and taking on that role. And I think, you know, part of it's also a little bit due to uh, Lowell mentioned this, but last Thursday, Trey Mitchell rolled his ankle in practice lightly mm-hmm. enough to, and we saw Christian Bishop uh, kind of step. He, I think he stepped on somebody during the course of the Kansas game. So I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on uh, Brock Cunningham being in the starting lineup, but still not getting a bunch of a starters minutes. Yeah. I, we talked about it a little bit last week, right? You, you can't have a plan for Brock Cunningham. I just don't think that works. Like you can't go into a game saying, okay, he's got to play 25 minutes tonight, or he's got to play 30 minutes tonight, or he's got to start, or he's got to come on. Like he's just such a wild card. It's got to be a feel thing for Brock Cunningham. So like you get him out there early and if he's doing Brock things or Brock plays as Chris Beard likes to call him, then you keep him out there. Like you keep him out there and let him do his thing where he's diving on the floor for loose balls. He's drawing charges. He's attacking the offensive glass. He's creating second possessions. He's doing all the dirty work things that Brock Cunningham, that good Brock Cunningham does. But like, if it's not there and sometimes it's not there, then you can't force it. And I'm worried about this matchup against Baylor because there are two things that Baylor possesses that even Kansas didn't really possess. And I know Texas doesn't possess these things. Baylor's longer and Baylor's more athletic than Texas. Brock Cunningham is not super long and he is not very athletic. So I don't know if this is like one of those, Hey, Brock Cunningham has to play a lot of minutes type of games. I don't know if I'm relying on Brock Cunningham to be a huge factor in Waco. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully he balls out and does the Brock plays and we get good Brock Cunningham this weekend. But like, I I just get worried when you're going up against super athletic teams and Baylor is a super athletic team about having uh, Brock Cunningham. And it's not just Cunningham. Like there are a lot of, Eh, athletes on this team like that mm-hmm. part of the matchup really scares me going into Saturday the other thing that's been interesting is and I've this is this is me and me coming out I don't know why Jace Febris gets minutes I really don't because don't he's a he's a three-point guy who's not hit a three-pointer he, I think he's hit one three-pointer this calendar year so and he he played decent against uh Kansas he he did all right Part of me wonders if there's just not enough where this depth is on this team a little bit because if if he is getting those minutes, why not? Why not Avery Benson? I, I don't know. I, I'm just one of those people who uh, like Jace is oh kind of a one trick guy. Now I showed a, a second trick with a dribble drive in the left hand against Kansas, but that was all he got. Yeah. And if he's not hitting three pointers, he's not a you know upgrade in 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 defense anywhere. So I'm I'm wondering why. He's, he's still getting minutes. And I know this is his last year, and I know he's stuck around, and Chris Beard probably is trying to reward him some. But I, he's, I, I get why Devin Askew plays, and it's sometimes out of necessity. I don't get why Jace Febris plays. It's hard to argue in favor of Jace Febris right now. And, yeah, I think his 1-3 that he hit this year was on January 4th. I don't think he's hit a 3 since then, and we're recording this on February 10th. So, for a guy who's a supposed sharpshooter, he hasn't been shooting very sharply this season. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he's not a plus defender. He's not a plus facilitator. Like, he's an off guard who's supposed to be a good shooter, and it's just not happening right now. So, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a depth issue. I don't think it's Chris Beard like, hey, I'm going to throw you a bone because you stayed here for an extra year, and I appreciate that. I think it's he just doesn't feel like he has a whole lot of options uh, in his backcourt. And, like, in in a perfect world, Andrew Jones is just more consistent. 
Like I, I would have mm-hmm. played Andrew Jones a little bit more on Monday, I think, but Andrew Jones is just not a good defender. And he was 0 for 5 from beyond the arc. So like if we get Iowa State Andrew Jones all the time, then I don't think you're going to see Jace Fabers. But like if Andrew Jones is just not Andrew Jones and Devin Askew isn't looking that great, then it almost feels like out of necessity where Chris Beard's like, hey, I gotta, I gotta give some minutes to somebody to see if somebody can do anything. So yeah, Devin Askew was he was doing all right. And he yeah. kind of plateaued and then and it hadn't been great in these past I mean, couple of games. So he just shoot the ball, Devin. Like yeah, not threes, yeah. but like when you get within a foot of the hoop, you're going to have to shoot. If it's a three on two and they're giving you a wide open layup, you're going to have to take that layup. Now that possession did ultimately turn into a Timmy Allen three point play. So I guess it was better that he didn't shoot, but like, dude, I mean, I, it's yeah. like, I'm yelling at the TV when Trey Mitchell shoots. I'm yelling at the TV when Devin Askew doesn't shoot. It's like, can we get a balance between those two, please, Joe? And the whole the whole crowd was feeling that too. Oh. You could just tell it just shoot, shoot. Yeah, yeah there were gro- when, yeah groans when Trey Mitchell put out that three. But I think that kind of covers it. What's after? Uh, is it TCU that comes after Baylor or is Norman. it uh, going to Norman? That's Norman. right. And they just picked up. I don't know if you watched that game uh, last night where they beat a uh, uh, you know top ten uh, Texas Tech team, and yeah. they've been. Uh, OU's been pretty inconsistent this year, but uh, picked it up and put the points on the board that Tech just couldn't overcome. And uh, the score was a little bit more than what that game indicated, but it still, it, it, in some respects, it indicated the game. It, it was it was a, Oklahoma was able to take control of that game, get things going on offense, shoot yeah. well, and uh, just Texas Tech just didn't have the ability to, to keep up with them. Yeah, OU needed that too. They were spiraling towards the bubble and maybe towards out of the tournament, but that was a huge win for them. 30 for Emoja Gibson, and then uh, this the SMU transfer, Ethan, I don't know, I always think it's Chargois. Chargois? Is it, uh, yeah, Chargois. is that it? Yeah. Okay. I'm like, is it that fancy or does it just look that fancy? Uh, he defended really well against Bryson Williams. Bryson Williams had five points. Like, he's the best player on Texas Tech, and Chargois did a phenomenal job defending him. So, yeah. Like, we're talking about this five-game gauntlet that Texas is in, and they're 3-1 and one right now. And we talked about it before it started, Joe, this five-game stretch against ranked teams. I'm like, man, if they go 3-2, and two, that's great. And at worst, they're going to go 3-2, and two, right? They could go 4-1 and one if they pull off another upset in Waco this weekend. But 3-2 and two is great. But then after that, you know, you've got at OU, rivalry game, against a tournament team who just beat Texas Tech. And then you've got Texas Tech, who just whooped your ass, coming back to Austin. So it's like... I've been focused on this stretch, but it's not like it gets a whole lot easier for Texas. I guess that's life in the Big 12. So you're, let's see, we're about a month away, I think, from Selection Sunday, around there. What's your call on Texas's seed line? Without um, going too far into the weeds, what do you think they, they end up as? Yeah, maybe I cheated because uh, I have gone pretty far into the weeds over the last couple of days. I mean, once once the calendar hits February, I'm looking at bracket matrix. I'm looking at every bracketology. I'm checking Ken Palm like every day, like religiously. So like as of right now, the bracket matrix, uh, matrix which once again compiles every bracketologist from around the country, they've got Texas as a five seed, like the last five seed, but a five seed. And that's... After top Kansas 20, right? Game. So that would be, yeah, top 20. That'd be 20th, yeah. I guess, right now. Yeah. So at this moment, I feel like five is fair for Texas. Uh, it could go up two and down two. I mean, I, I guess technically it could go down further than that if Texas completely tailspins down the stretch. I don't, I don't want to even knock on wood right now, so I don't speak that into existence. But, I mean, if you're asking me to make a prediction, like where I think they'll ultimately be, I'll go six. 
six feels mm-hmm. right. Um, I mean, look, I, I was like projecting the rest of their schedule and what are they seven and four in big 12 play right now? Like we were talking <laughs> about it. If they win eight conference games, they're going to be in, they're going to win right. more than eight conference games. So like if they get to nine and it's like, all right, that's good. They're fine there too. But like they, they should get to 10 and, and maybe 11 if things go right, like 10 or 11 feels like the mix. And that to me feels like a six seed at minimum, especially if they can win a game in Kansas city. So I'll go six. That feels like the most neutral. I think they could get to a three if all things go really well down the stretch. Right. And I think if they struggle, they could be in the eight, nine conversation. So I'll go six. Okay. I see the thing about six is that means what, if you get an 11, is that a, that's typically a a mid-major conference tournament champion, right? Yeah. Well, the last time Texas was a six, they got, uh, don't remind me. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Okay. I don't need to know about that game. So it could uh, be. It could be a team like that. I'm looking at the 11 seeds right now on bracket matrix. They've got BYU. Oh God, Miami, North Carolina, and Oregon. Hmm. So those are the those are the bracket matrix 11 seeds right now. Of course, they have Texas as a five. I won't read the 12s. You can go to that website yourself. We won't bore you all with that. But like, yeah, you could get a. A, I mean, Loyola of Chicago, like I think they were an 11 seed on their final four run. So you could get like a conference champ from a smaller conference or you could get just a bubble power team that just sneaks into the NCAA tournament. So that, that's usually the conversation there. Man, it's nice to think about like seeding. And not I know. Teams. I know. It's it's so great. Oh, I, I hope we can talk about a freaking tournament win, Joe, because it's been too damn long. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Basketball talk. You want to talk about some 2023 recruiting? Let's do it. All right. So what 2023 recruit are you most familiar with? Arch Manning, of course. There you go. Okay. So uh, Texas, uh, along with Clemson, I think Alabama and Georgia, uh, those seem to be the main, uh, the main suitors for, for Arch Manning. And, the, from everything we've heard over inside Texas, and we've been tracking this recruitment for a while, ever since his visit for the Oklahoma State game, uh, basically Texas is in a great spot with Arch Manning. They like Sarkeesian. They like the idea. They're open to the idea of, you know, probably redshirting, considering that, hey, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit more uh, of development and time to – get a guy ready to play and Arch. Yeah. He, he might be good enough to play as a true freshman. Uh, but I think the Manning seemed to understand that that's not a necessity. That's not a necessity for him. Uh, and that's one of the things that, you know, despite them keeping the, everything close to the best, that's one of the things that we, we at inside Texas have, have kind of heard about, but Texas went five and seven. Yeah. And uh, whether your last name is Manning or whether your last name is who, who cares, that's, that's going to take, that's going to take a toll on any recruiting effort. So, but, and the other thing is Texas has not really pivoted at all from pursuing Arch Manning. They're going against the heavy hitters, but uh, this one looks like it's going to be, Texas is going to be in it until very end. And, you know, I, I doubt the Mannings are a, a flip type, family or anything like that, but Steve Sarkeesian's offensive uh, uh, action, uh, it's A, it's one of the reasons Quinn Ewers, one of the reasons Quinn Ewers decided to come back, and B, one of the reasons why Texas is so in it for Arch Manning. Yeah, the Mannings don't flip until draft day, right? They wait till the NFL draft, and then they decide they don't want to be there. They don't want to go to San Diego, yeah. (laughs) That's how it works for them. Uh, A minor miracle that 
Texas is still in the mix for Arch Manning. Joe, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What's better case scenario for Texas? Is it if Texas goes five and seven again and doesn't get consistent quarterback play to where Arch Manning's like, man, if I go there, I'll start day one and I can turn that program around. Or is it Texas goes nine and three to 10 and two. Quinn Ewers looks really good. And Arch Manning's like, okay, like things can obviously work at Texas. Like out of those two, because it's weird because Quinn Ewers like would still have more eligibility left. I guess he could go pro after next year. But like obviously Arch Manning couldn't step in and start right away if Quinn Ewers looks really good this season. Or on the other hand, it's like, oh, Texas is bad. But Arch Manning's like, man, I could play from day one. I think it's a second scenario because I think a five and seven season kind of shows Arch like, oh, I can't win at Texas. You know, no matter what, if they, even if they have, you know, if they have Quinn Ewers or if, if it's Hudson Card, who still has a lot of, you know, passing pedigree uh, and, and at least a good reputation. He's got to start living or showing, showing it on the field, but he's had a, he has a good reputation uh, as far as passing goes. So if neither of those two can put together a good season for Texas to get more than, than five wins, then yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, tough sledding as far as that recruitment goes. But it looks like, uh, you know, they're going to uh, be in contention. I think Arch is going to take some more visits this upcoming spring. Uh, you know, I bet Texas is going to get one of those visits. And you know, he's a guy who has in, downstream impacts on other guys in the class, including one of the top wide receivers in Texas and John. And uh, does the idea of a – wide receiver who is trying to figure out at least from everything we've gathered gathered trying to figure out whether he should go to A&M and play in that offense or go to Texas and play in that offense does that give you any any flashbacks any uh you know oh no here we go again considering some of the wide receiver recruitments we've seen over the past couple of years mm, I'm sure it does is there a name that you're thinking about that I should be thinking yeah. about Oh, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Stewart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Demond Demas. Yeah. Uh, there's been a couple. Yeah, so. you're right. Look, I, I, I would love. I mean, uh, best case scenario for Texas is Arch Manning not only commits, but commits early. I mean, you'll take him committing anyway. If he puts pen to paper and ultimately decides to sign with Texas, it's all good. I don't care when it happens. I'm just happy it happens. But best case scenario is Arch Manning commits early, and there's that domino effect, right? where just a bunch of big-time 2023 recruits want to go play with Arch Manning. Like, that's how it works. That's generally how it works. When the top quarterback commits somewhere, we saw it with Chris Sims at Texas 20 years ago. Like, top QB in the country wants to go to this school. Other people follow. Not only offensive players, too. Like, defensive guys are like, hell, man, I want to I want to have that guy. I want to be a part team. of it, yeah. Exactly. So, best-case scenario would be Arch Manning commits and commits early, and that would obviously help with guys like John Tay Cook and some of the other – top skill position players in this class of 2023 so yeah i got a hunch that the cook recruitment though is gonna gonna be going on for a long time joe i don't i don't think we're gonna get any resolution on that one for a while i'll see if i could put some family members on him uh <laughs> considering anyway uh but another recruit that's kind of linked to arch and in jante kind of as a trio is ruben owens known as the you know his nickname the black unicorn. Is that the black unicorn? Is that yep. a self-proclaimed nickname or like do other people actually call him that? Have we figured that out? I think it became both. Okay. Uh, but I think I think it started with in inside the uh, Ruben Owens household. Uh, but El Campo running back one time Texas commit. Uh, this is going to be in he's he's a he's the best football player on 
basically every field he steps on. And when I'm a, when I'm looking at kids who go to these three, a four, a level schools, that's what I want to see right away. I want to see that Jordan Whittington factor. I want to see trying to think of some other players just like that. You know, the, the Dalton and Doug Brooks factor, Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Brooks for Howitzville. He was pretty much the best player on every field that he stepped on. Uh, So I want to see that. And I think that's exactly what uh, uh, Ruben Owens offers. Um, Kind of like with Arch, they they haven't really pivoted away from other two other 2023 running backs. It it could be a two running back class considering uh, I think you lose both. You're going to Rashawn Johnson, although he could take the COVID year, I think he's going you know, this will be a senior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bijan Robinson, he's a three-year player. We all know that. I yeah. think everybody's operating with that understanding. This is probably going to be a two-bat class, uh, but this is the one that uh, that Texas is, is really focusing on and one that is going to take a, a lot of different schools, uh, Texas to top a lot of different schools because uh, Ruben is going to visit Georgia and has a couple times, uh, LSU. He'll probably visit AM. He'll probably visit Alabama. He'll visit Texas. Uh, who knows if, if this Oklahoma regime will get him on campus. Uh, but, you know, this is another, just like with Jonte Cook, just like with Arch Manning, you know, this is another recruitment that Texas is going to have to battle some national powers for in order to win. Despite the decommitment, do you still feel like Texas is in good standing with Ruben Owens? Yeah, I, I think I think he definitely they definitely are uh, because of that decommitment. A, it was really early. I mean, it was before his junior year, or yeah, I think I think about a year ago. So he was young. Uh, it was it gives Texas a lot of time to I don't want to say make up ground, but renormalize things after sure. the, uh, an event like a, a decommitment. Um, and you know, he's he's just down Highway seventy one. He's not too far from from Texas and that's going to play a factor in, in, uh, you know, trying to earn his signature down the road. And be an awesome set of triplets to land for Texas. Exactly. Right. Get that quarterback and Arch Manning, get the running back and Ruben Owens, get the receiver and John T. Cook. Like you'll take any of those guys, but if you could find a way to land all three, then that's, that's the type of class that can really turn things around. Yeah. We've been talking about offensive guys and I think those are the, the main ones, but Texas does have one, 2023 commit in its class right now and Arlington Seguin's Jamel Johnson. Uh, he's a, he, he probably plays a lot of corner, but he's been sold as a, a versatile piece, a guy who can play a bunch of different positions in the secondary. Uh, I think he's already taken a visit elsewhere. Uh, I think that's just kind of with a lot of these kids who never had these opportunities to go to junior days as uh, sophomores and some as juniors, they're going to take their visit opportunities. They, you know, they had an entire what year and a half period of dead of dead period. Uh, so I think they're going to be able to, they're going to look and see what's out there, but Jamel Johnson, a guy in the DFW area, uh, Arlington Seguin, who provides some versatility in the back end and kind of interesting that it, it starts with a defensive back and not a quarterback, but I think that's just the nature of, recruiting arch manning at this point yeah i'm with you i'm curious where johnson will play at the next level right some sites have him as a safety some sites have him as a corner you know 6'1 175 he's got the size to play both i think he could and probably will put on a few more pounds by the time he gets to college and obviously once he's at college too uh but yeah i mean i i'm cool with it four-star secondary piece 
We've seen the secondary play at Texas over the last few years. It's it's left mm-hmm. a lot to be desired. So I'm okay with bringing in anybody who could potentially help turn things around. So like the little bit of film I've watched on Jamel Johnson, uh, and hopefully Texas is able to turn that commitment into a signature when it's all said and done. The other Arlington defensive back that they need to get is Arlington Martins, JV and Toviano. Yeah. And by having Maurice Blackwell, Travell Johnson, and doing well in Arlington, doing well in Arlington in general, getting just getting Devon Campbell. Uh, you know, let's see. I think that's about it. Bowie. I mean, they had Shane Bouchel for a little bit, but he's probably more associated with, with uh, uh, SMU at this point. But doing well in Arlington may help them get guy who could be the top corner in the in the 2023 class and really you can never have too many elite cornerbacks especially in uh the big 12 as it operates right now and kind of going forward in the sec they're going to have these uh these wide receivers and that you know jalen waddle devonta smith uh john mechie mold uh kind of in that 60 to 62 180 190 pound range who are burners and you need to have these guys who can rough them up at the line of scrimmage and be able to play them and be able to play over the top of them. And JV and Toviano is definitely a guy who can do that type of thing. I don't know if the 2023 kids are going to play in the big 12 at all, but uh newsflash to the national guys who for some reason can't grasp this. The sec is, is more like the big 12 from 15 years ago than ever before. It's almost mm-hmm. like the conferences have switched roles a little bit. Yeah, right? Big 12 was a running conference this past year. Right, yeah, Big 12 has been running in defense more the last couple of seasons, while the SEC has, like, taken more air raid principles and, and is playing more games in the 30s and 40s versus what they used to be. So, yeah, uh, look, it, it doesn't matter what conference you're in. Big 12, SEC, whenever Texas makes the move to the SEC, they're going to need talented secondary pieces because both leagues have really, really good wide receiver play. And yeah, when you're going up against Alabama and LSU and Georgia and AM, like you've got to have corners who can hang. So hitting Toviano, who I think is the top corner in the state as well, uh, would be absolutely massive for this team. And then just kind of to wrap things up, Texas has to win this year. Uh, you saw that uh, the, the NIL plus a couple coaching carousel moves being made. Uh, plus being in the first year, which, which does give you some leeway on the recruiting trail that helped Texas a lot. It helped them to get that, uh, roster resetting offensive line in class with two five stars. It helped them get, uh, you know, the portal helped them in multiple regards. Like they had a lot of breaks, a lot of things go their way going five and seven. Again, you're not going to get those breaks. You're not going to get, you're going to start to be judged on what's actually happening. Uh, so, you know, we always say Texas has to win this year. Uh, we even on inside Texas, we've kind of wrote that uh, this is the year before the year uh, as far as the season on the on the field results may go. Uh, but they, they can't go five and seven. They can't toy with four and eight. They, they need to they need to go above 500 with, without a doubt uh, in order to have as much success as they think they should have in this 2023 class. Let me ask you this as we're kind of wrapping things up here. Does Sark get a 2023 if Texas goes five and seven in 2022? I mean, like it, if it's seven and five, he'll be back, of course. Like if they have the winning record that you talked about, then yeah, he'll get a third year. His seat will be warm, but he'll get a third year. But if they go sub 500 and back-to-back years, like, does he get a third year? Yeah. Okay. Charlie Strong got three years. And Charlie Strong had, what, I think 
I mean, Charlie at least got million. to a, a bowl game in year two. That's like true. They lost it and finished sub 500. No, that was year one. That was oh, year you're one. right. And then it was five and seven, five and seven. And, and Ch- Charlie had $15 million protecting him, and it wasn't enough. Uh, Star- Sark will have, I think, around like 20-plus million protecting him. So, And I don't really know who the, the next guy is. I mean, do you – yeah, I. Yeah, all right. We don't. Have I, to, we don't I think. Have to talk about I think. It. I think <laughs> if he went five and seven, he would come back. Okay. Uh, but his seat would be pretty pretty hot. Yeah. Okay. So well, uh, hopefully we don't have to have that conversation during the season. But I I hope we don't have to either. So. What a, what oh, a crappy man. way Anything to else? end. What a crappy yeah. way to well, end a good hey, podcast. Hey, so you, I, you haven't been paying attention. I got a screen up. James Harden got traded. I just he saw went that. Through. I just saw so, that. So uh, you're going to have some uh, good thing for the Rockets. Going to that that Brooklyn team is kind of falling apart, and there's some pick swaps in there. Real quick, I know you've basically been talking about it all week, but uh, kind of overarching thoughts: Lovey Smith for mm. Houston. Um, could have been worse. Could have been a lot worse, and it could have been better. I, Lovey Smith was not my first choice. If you asked any Texans fan at the start of this process, if Lovey Smith was their first choice, I don't think anybody would have told you yes. But I don't think you, anybody would have said he was the choice. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when when your options were Josh McCown or Lovey Smith, then I think people would side with Lovey Smith. Like I, I firmly believe, and people I've talked to behind the scenes tell me the same thing that Josh McCown was going to be the next head coach of the Houston Texans. Then the Brian Flores lawsuit came out, caused the Texans to pivot and shift gears. And that's when they ultimately decided that, all right, let's just hire Lovey Smith to not avoid this S storm that would be coming our way. If we gave Josh McCown, a white guy with zero coaching experience at the NFL or college level, the job is our head coach. Yeah. I'm maybe this is an optimist in me, but I'm kind of fooling myself to think Lovey running the defense and the Texans defense hasn't been awful. It's been under, it's, it's not been stocked with good personnel. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but there, it's been okay. Okay. Sure. Uh, and I like the idea of Pep Hamilton calling things. So, yeah. and especially now that you're going to rebuild and, you know, I think what this, this draft year, you probably take go O-line or you, if Aiden Hutchinson falls to you, you maybe take him yeah. or you trade. Like uh, there, there's, it's not what I thought it would be. Uh, I thought it'd be either McCown or, you know, I, I thought, I thought it was going to be Flores before the lawsuit happened. Um, but I think what, it, what the sense that I have is that a guy like O'Connell said, yeah, I'll come here. But if I got to have some discretion that certain other people in the front office should not have, and I don't think, I think that was shot down. Yeah. They probably were going to be cool with Flores until the, the lawsuit came out, realized that it wasn't going to, help them and, and factor it, that wasn't going to be a situation that they wanted to deal with. And then they just got to the point, well, we need, we need somebody uh, can't be McCown. Uh, so they went with lovey. And the thing is they can keep lovey, keep pet Hamilton, which I think is the most important thing. And they can probably put McCown on staff. Now yeah. they just ax lovey in two years to, to elevate McCown, which I wouldn't put it past this franchise of doing. Uh, I, I'll, I'll squirm about it, hmm. kind of wonder why they, you know, waited to do that anyway. Uh, but it, you know, it, it, all things considered, I, I think it's as okay of a result. I, I expect a disaster with this yeah. team. 
Uh, I mean, and, they made so uh, many god awful. This was not a, a total disaster, right. but it wasn't the best hire ever. Yeah, they made so many god awful decisions over the last three or four years that when they don't make the worst decision possible, it feels like a win, and that that's where we're at right now. So there's some optimism here. Uh, just because it's not McCown. I think it's more people are excited that it's not McCown versus that like, oh, Lovey's going to be some amazing coach. But Lovey, mm-hmm. one, he did a great job at the press conference. And uh, yeah, he's he's a good bridge guy for a couple of years after the Texans fired a bridge guy after one year. But that's where we're at in Houston. So there you uh, go. That's what happens when you got Cal run things. Anything else? I think no, that no. about uh, that does it. That's it, man. Good stuff. Talking Texas basketball, talking some Texas football, a little bonus Houston Texans talk at the end. But uh, appreciate y'all listening. Thanks for the continued love and support. Make sure y'all follow Joe on Twitter at josephcook89. Check out the great work he does over at InsideTexas.com. Make sure you subscribe subscribe over there if you haven't done that already. You can follow me at Brad Kellner. Listen to The Wheelhouse on ESPN Houston every weekday afternoon from 3 to 7 on ESPN975.com. Thanks again to our sponsors, Audiovisual Consultations and Altstadt Beer. And thanks to you for Joe Cook. I am BK Brad Kellner. Until next time, y'all stay safe. Y'all stay healthy. And hook them. <laughs>